0: Willkommen, bienvenue, welcome. No, this is not Cabaret. It's Think About It, a podcast about the power of ideas and how language can change the world, with Uli Baer. The lawsuit against Harvard University alleges discrimination against Asian-American students who have a harder time being admitted to the elite school than African-Americans. What has been the role of Asian-Americans in the campus movements for racial justice? I spoke with Mark Zeng-Putterman, who is a PhD student at Brown University. He also was co-curator of a landmark exhibit on the eugenics files, which had institutionalized and legitimated racial science in the 1920s. Mark writes frequently about the role of Asian Americans and about campus struggles. Welcome, Mark, to Think About It. First of all, I'm really glad to be speaking with you again. I think it's been a few years now. Mm-hmm. And so thanks for joining me on the podcast.
1: Thank you for Thank having you. me.
0: So Mark, you're now a PhD student and you write a lot and work a lot on political movements. And the last time we interacted, you were working on a show in New York City on the eugenics movements in America called Haunted Files about the eugenics records office with mm-hmm. Jack Chen, right?
1: Correct.
0: Yeah. Yes. And so Jack's been on the show as well. And I'm interested where your work has taken you in the last couple of years. I've read a lot of your pieces, which I think are incredibly important. Thank you. So first of all, thank you for those. And as you know, the public talks a lot about the role of student protest, student politics, and now it's gotten this focus through the lawsuit against Harvard University and the way in which the mayor of New York City is trying to rethink admissions policies to the elite high schools, where Mm -hmm. Asian Americans become a talking point in the public, and Asian American students become this talking point, and you've written quite a lot about that, how to slow this conversation down and think about this more thoughtfully.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a complicated question, and I think the Harvard lawsuit and the specialized high school debate in New York City are, are somewhat separate in some ways, but I think at the broadest level, these conversations obscure a lot, primarily or most obviously, the diversity within this category of Asian American, which itself is very fraught. I think, as a historian of Asian American social movements, when we see the term Asian American get thrown around today, it's often sort of in a depoliticized demographic category. And I think that erases a lot of the political origins of the term Asian-American, which comes out of student protests, comes out of Asian-American involvement in the Black Power movement in in the late 1960s and 70s, when Asian-American was really claimed as this political identity, bringing together a diverse set of people from different nationalities, ethnicities, but who saw their sort of struggles in the United States as intertwined. And so I think when we see You know, for instance, in the Harvard lawsuit, Asian-Americans being invoked as this monolithic category that's supposedly being discriminated against, we have to ask critically, well, who are we talking about when we say Asian-Americans? The vast majority of the Asian-American members of groups like Students for Fair Admissions are Chinese-American, almost all of them, to my knowledge. There's a lot of sort of erasure and sort of deliberate erasure, I think, of other Asian American perspectives, particularly Southeast Asian Americans who have very, very different experiences in the educational system.
0: And when you're saying that the term originates in the late 60s, is it part of the civil rights movement that people from very different backgrounds think we share some experiences, that we have very different experiences, and they start thinking of themselves for political purposes to advance but a particular agenda to advance racial justice and mm-hmm. equality, right?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so Asian-American as a identity category gets sort of invented in 1968 in the Bay Area. I believe it's actually a Berkeley, UC Berkeley student group that coins the term Asian-American. That's very much in the wake of the Civil Rights Movement, the shift from, I guess, a, a black civil rights agenda to a black power philosophy. Okay the origins of the Asian American movement are very much in a coalitional moment where Asian Americans are thinking relationally with black folks, with the Chicano movement, with the Native American movement. And so we're actually right now celebrating 50 years since the term Asian American was coined, which is also 50 years since the student strikes at San Francisco State University in 1968, which sparked the first ethnic studies program
0: interesting really so this is going at the same moment when black students are really putting a lot of pressure on institutions to start black studies movements because several of the ivy league institutions are celebrating 50 anniversaries this year or next for black studies departments or centers
1: Mm -hmm. yeah so the 1968 student strikes at san francisco state university ended up starting both the first ethnic studies department and first black studies department in the country. The sort of coalition group behind those protests was called the Third World Liberation Front, made up of a combination of black, Chicano, Native American and Asian American students. And so that moment of student protest and coalition building is often thought of as sort of the crucible of Asian American political identity as well.
0: You've written that solidarity requires specificity that you acknowledge Mm -hmm. the individual groups there and the differences among them, rather than saying, oh, there's solidarity, there's a common cause, and then it erases what we can forget about those internal differences. So the specificity is that there are different groups coming together with very different concerns and different histories also, right?
1: Mm -hmm. Absolutely, yeah. I think there's a lot we can learn in our current political moment from sort of this era of third-world solidarity ethos. It's interesting the ways in which political memory does and doesn't get passed down between generations of activists, particularly student activists. So at Brown, where I'm currently a PhD student, there's the Brown Center for Students of Color, which when it was formed, sort of probably the early 70s, was called the Third World Student Center. And sometime within the past seven or eight years, current Brown students of color thought that the term was sort of offensive and that the administration felt that it was more politically correct to change the name. And I know I have a few older professors who've been around since sort of the era of the 70s who were very frustrated that the memory and awareness of what sort of third world meant as a category, as a call to action for students of color in that era, frustration that that wasn't being remembered and honored.
0: And and it's interesting that the term meant progressive politics, meant solidarity, that acknowledge differences and then the movement yet you just described natasha Veriku was on the program a couple of days ago and she described this renaming as well that it has become politically unacceptable for some people to even use the term third world mm-hmm. and it used to be a call to action to actually improve things and move toward something like racial justice and now it's become a term that's so fraught that the university decided to unname it
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's complicated and it's sad. Vijay Prashad has some great writing about the idea of the third world, not necessarily as a place, but as a, a notion of sort of decolonization and an alternative to Western hegemony in the Cold War era. In the US domestic context, folks were certainly picking up on that sort of internationalist idea of solidarity. Yeah, the term's meaning has certainly sort of eroded, and I think people have forgotten the political origins of that. In a similar way to, you know, naturalization or depoliticization of the term Asian American.
0: I wouldn't have known that it was marked a moment in 1968 of solidarity with progressive movements and that people consciously take on this term while still acknowledging the specificity. As we know, and we'll get to that, that now it's used really kind of in the opposite way. It Mm -hmm. homogenizes a group and then ascribed some motives or is used also in ways that are probably not at all cognizant of the history of that. How did you get first interested in studying such movements and looking back at this history as a student yourself because you've done a lot of work and you publish a lot but at the same time when you said many students are not aware of these histories and many faculty member or general public is also not aware of these histories.
1: Mm-hmm. I think I was lucky honestly. I was lucky to tap into existing institutions such as the Asian Pacific American Institute at NYU, where folks were sort of doing the work of safeguarding these histories and archiving these histories. And so I, I was a junior in undergrad when I started working at the APA Institute. I didn't have a particular background in Asian American studies or Asian American history. I just sort of needed a job. And I ended up there
0: and you've applied to and one of those jobs on campus and you thought this sounds interesting and I'll help out and then
1: Exactly, and I sort of got sucked into this world this body of politics of scholarship in which I saw my own sort of experiences and identities reflected and that was an amazing sort of moment where this world got opened up to me and I think through working at the APA Institute, through organizing with other students of color at NYU and trying to build these coalitions, I was interested in tapping into earlier iterations of Asian American activism. And so I think being in New York City, particularly the local context also lended itself towards a certain kind of political memory because there are a lot of sort of movement elders who've been in the Asian American movement since its origin points in the late 60s and 70s, who are still sort of around, and I was able to connect with several of them. I actually organized a a sort of reunion intergenerational conversation between young Asian American activists and sort of this older generation through the APA Institute as an attempt to sort of bridge that divide and see what we can learn from the past to apply to the present. And those sorts of events and connections sort of inspired me to keep going.
0: And so you discovered there had been a history of student activism from all sorts of Asian American students for at least 50 years. That's right. So it's not, so two things, it's not that There's no activism and there's been this discussion or this charge and you've written about this idea that there's a sense of standing back a little bit, a sense of staying out of these kind of controversies or a sense of being dragged into them by all sorts of other interest groups that Asian-American students don't have that active a role. And you said you discovered that there had been decades of work that Mm -hmm. actually one can learn from that. Where do you see this in the more current moment? How did other students respond to this and how this whole debate right now around the role of Asian-Americans in the campus controversies. And I say controversies with some quotation marks because I think some of them are real and some of them are fabricated by the media more than by universities.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right that there are sort of these constructed narratives about this predetermined or presumed role that Asian-Americans have in campus politics and campus racial politics in particular. And I think that erases a lot of work that is being done and so as I've written I think there is not only this rich passive Asian American activism on campuses and beyond but there's an ongoing movement and I think in the work I've done the research I've done and just connecting with students at different campuses there is ongoing work being done by students who are addressing their own concerns as Asian American students who are trying to leverage their sort of positioning within the university, within racial hierarchies to uplift the needs of other student of color groups. I think that there's a way in which there's sort of this self-fulfilling prophecy of the model minority myth in which, you know, people assume, oh, Asian American students are apathetic, they're not politically involved, they're not building coalitions with black or latino student groups and that can sort of drive students into a corner and i think make them feel paralyzed
0: as you said you've written about it's a bit of a trap you're set up in a way this term you just used model minority can you unpack that a bit for our listeners of where that comes from and what that is supposed to do what kind of work that term does
1: mm-hmm. Yeah, so the model minority myth is one of the oldest and most prevalent racial narratives about Asian-Americans, particularly East Asian, but also South Asian-Americans. And it emerges most visibly sort of in the 1960s, in the very moment in which the black civil rights movement is emerging. And it's very much put forth as a counter narrative to black demands for racial justice. I pointing to particularly Chinese and Japanese Americans in that moment and saying, well, they have faced racial discrimination too, but they've become successful. They've quote unquote assimilated, they're sending their kids to college, they're hardworking, and most importantly, they're not sort of rocking the boat. They're not putting forth political demands to the white American power structure. This was a way to uplift Asian Americans as a token or a tool with which to discourage particularly black Americans. Um, It's
0: a tool to discourage activism and demands. And it also says the system works well. You can all integrate and assimilate and these opportunities are here. And the myth says, so here a a group and they take advantage of it, and then they get absorbed into the American dream or whatever the aspiration is, the middle class, or have success in American ways, right? Mm-hmm. So that's behind it. The, so there's no need for protest. There's no need for change.
1: Exactly. So, and I think it's very much tied up in the myth of meritocracy, which I know you've been talking about with other guests in the context of affirmative action. But this notion that, well, if you keep your head down and work hard, the scales will even out and the hardest working, the smartest will rise to the top naturally, regardless of any social inequalities that might exist.
0: On this idea of merit, it plays groups against one another and say, if you're not doing well, you probably just don't have the jobs. You can't do it. You're not qualified, right? So this becomes this issue about college admissions, where merit has been invented as this supposedly objective neutral criterion that has always existed. and It's being bandied about. I mean, this morning on Twitter, a lot of very high profile academics are actually defending the idea of merit because that would be really neutral and objective as if merit is not an invention and a construction that people decide what matters and what doesn't matter, what, Mm -hmm. what deserves more attention. Through the 70s and 80s, what happens with these debates? And I'm really interested that the campus debates seem to come back and back and back to the same questions and the same problems. And we live through these strange deja vu moments of having yet again a debate about affirmative action, which we've had since about 1866, really, in this country. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And, And there's been an effort to derail it since then. And this effort right now is a very strong one, I think, to force it into the courts to derail it together, to say affirmative action is wrong because people can make it without any change to the existing system.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that moving into the '80s, we see the rise of colorblind ideology in a way that I think we're still very much living in this moment of wanting to be able to say, "Well, we had the civil rights movement, and you know, these legislations got passed to level the playing field, and now." everything's fine. Now, you know, racism is no longer systemic, meritocracy is real and equally accessible, and it's a very sort of neoliberal, individualized notion of success, that if if you're not successful, your community's not successful, you need to look in the mirror and see what's wrong with family structure, with cultural norms and differences, and that's a way to continue to put the blame primarily on black and brown working class Communities for, you know, failing to live up to this pull yourself up by the bootstraps mentality and this colorblind ideology, I think continues to invoke Asian Americans in a very strategic way to say, look, these people of color are able to climb the ladder in a particular way. And that's proof that, you know, we live in this post racial world. And how
0: would you respond or explain when people say, Well, But it is a fact that on a level of scores, if you look at groups, do the following, remove all other factors. You look at only one criteria, that some groups look different on a scale. And this is why I think these debates then explode about intelligence, about preparation, about willingness, etc., so how do you explain that when you, you know, you can also teaching when you explain what happens with this idea of colorblindness? Isn't that the best frame to just be neutral, look at objective results?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's interesting for me to be sort of stepping into these conversations about the role of standardized testing and ideas of meritocracy and race, having done, as you mentioned, this project a few years back about the American eugenics movement, Because what I learned in that context is that the rise of hegemonic ideal of standardized testing as an objective barometer of intelligence or capacity really comes out of this era of scientific racism and desires to prove through objective measures white supremacy and white superiority. And so the first standardized mental testing comes very directly out of the eugenics movement as a way to gauge ability as a way to pathologize disability and racial difference. And these things get institutionalized in a way that, you know, they're so normalized. The SAT, something that every high schooler does, and it's taken for granted just the way the system works. But the roots of these ideas that we can find supposedly objective ways to measure things like intelligence comes very directly out of an era of scientific racism. And I think there's a way in which that legacy continues to haunt these practices.
0: And this 1920s invention and categorization of what you call scientific racism, so it's people setting up criteria that actually ultimately will favor certain groups over others because they privilege certain things. Mm -hmm. So the idea, when people say it's scientific, you're saying part of this is constructed. It is not scientific, meaning these are immutable facts in nature or in people that can be measured objectively but rather the way we look at things is a construction itself
1: absolutely
0: the scholar lani Guarnier, who's now at harvard she wrote a book on the sat and said it predicts two things very reliably which is family income and zip code and mm-hmm. after the first year of college it has no bearing on the success of a student actually that students actually, after one year, you lose all the effect of the SAT. The first year, some students still do better because they have gone to different schools and probably have been more prepared academically. But then after one year, it levels out completely. So it doesn't really predict what universities would be interested in, how you do through the whole system. Mm-hmm. So in the 80s, you have this rise of colorblindness. People say, we shouldn't really look at race anymore. We did that a while ago. That was the 60s. Now we've moved on and things are really good now as we realize they aren't really that good. So you have this come back to resurface and when you look at what's happened in the last 20 years or so and where we are today, what happens to these conversations about achievement and admissions and especially what you've written about, the role of Asian-Americans, how they fit into this picture?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, in a sense, I think we're sort of stuck in this rhetorical loop. In a lot of ways, I don't think that much has changed since The 90s when it comes to these debates about affirmative action and merit and the role of asian americans therein i was reading a collection of essays sort of a survey of the field of asian american studies in the 1990s and there were several essays about the rise of what they called asian american neoconservatism and i was struck by the resonance of that term in that category today because i think we could describe Folks like the Asian Americans participating in Students for Fair admissions as neoconservatives who co opt a certain language of colorblindness, who ironically lift up, you know, fingerpicked quotes from people like Martin Luther King about content of character, not color of skin, in order to lay claim to sort of this myth of meritocracy.
0: You've written quite a bit about this, how. This conservative coalition that's saying there's an unfair practice against Asian-Americans, their quotas against them, the admissions, and we need to take a hard look at this. And you're saying they're actually using the rhetoric of the civil rights movement. They are taking quotes, a quote that come up in, in the Harvard lawsuit. I'm Asian-American. I have a dream, too. Totally claim to this idea that this is about racial equality. And what is being dropped out here? What's the part where Asian American groups, as you said, these conservative groups are appropriating the language of color blindness, race neutrality, and leave mm-hmm. out their whole entire history?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I tweeted something about this in which I described some of this rhetoric coming from Asian Americans in the context of affirmative action as, as racial newcomer syndrome. I'm not sure if anyone has ever used that term before. I just sort of thought it was fitting. But I think so much gets lost in these conversations. I mean, I'm someone who believes that we need to spend time trying to reframe and revisit the idea of affirmative actions as a form of reparations, as a form of accounting for, particularly the way in which Ivy League schools are imbricated in the history of particularly slavery and the slave trade. And for Asian Americans, many of whose families arrive, you know, after 1965 or even as recently as, you know, the 1990s to show up on this field and say, you know, African Americans are being favored and we are being discriminated against is is such an erasure of hundreds of years of particularly anti-black racial conflict in the United States and within these institutions that really needs to be accounted for. And I think gets left out not only in these sort of neoconservative rhetorical debates, but even in progressive defenses of affirmative action saying, well, you know, even white students can benefit from having a more diverse classroom. Well, I think that's great, but that's, sort of seeding the argument of affirmative actions as a form of accountability for centuries of racial discrimination and particularly, you know, universities being complicit in that history.
0: So you would say affirmative action ought to be explained, maybe even justified, as a form of reparative justice, going back to centuries of exploitation, and to see it as a way this is part of a larger sense of both symbolic and actual reparations
1: that would be the claim that i'd love to stake i think that it's difficult i think that there's no longer perhaps a legal basis for that sort of race aware admissions policy but at the same time you know we have schools like georgetown that have been grappling with how to atone for in that case descendants of over 200 enslaved people that were sold by the institution in order to remain financially solvent and so that's a very tangible example of well we're able to identify however many descendants of these peoples that this institution literally sold for profit and how do we deal with that legacy but i think more broadly yeah there is this sort of symbolic but also very material way of thinking about the ways in which these elite institutions need to account for their role in these systems of oppression
0: The argument you just made, it's the same argument that Professor Randall Kennedy made, and he said a big problem is that liberals have tried to promote or sell affirmative action as no cost because it's good for all the students, they all benefit from diversity in the classroom and on campus, and he said by not using a restorative justice argument and by pretending there are no costs for anyone, it's all a win-win for everybody, They've made themselves vulnerable for conservatives to attack affirmative action. Mm-hmm. Because if you say it's a win-win and people say, look, here's a loss, which is what this lawsuit has been framed as. Here's Asian Americans lose out in this game. A few of them won't get admitted and they're pitted against African American students, which is statistically probably neither right nor provable.
1: Mm-hmm. And then...
0: Frank Wu on the program has pointed out that the prayer for relief, which is the last page of the lawsuit against Harvard, which is attached to the lawsuit where they say what they want. Asian Americans don't show up at all in this prayer for relief. What they demand and what they want is a permanent injunction prohibiting Harvard from using race as a factor for all future undergraduate admissions. They want to acknowledge Mm -hmm. it for Harvard and then for all schools so they can no longer learn or use the race of ethnicity It has nothing to do with Mm Asian-Americans. This lawsuit in the last page reveals it is really about ending affirmative action altogether. Mm -hmm. Your argument that it's about restorative justice and acknowledges a history, how do you respond to the people who've been framed in this other way and say, but we're losing out here. We don't have a full opportunity. And Professor Kennedy said, well, some people will not get in and some people will get in. That's how it is.
1: Mm -hmm. I think my (laughs) response would be that, you know, these very, very high achieving, mostly East Asian Americans who, you know, we've heard the story and the students for fair admissions are using these students as the symbol of, you know, supposed Asian American losses when it comes to affirmative action. But the fact is that these sort of poster children who are getting these perfect scores, who have these incredible GPAs. but somehow don't get into Harvard or Yale or Princeton, they're going to be okay. They're going to UC Berkeley. They're going to end up okay. And I think this obsession with the status of the Ivy Leagues needs to be problematized. I think that in a lot of ways, they've become a symbol for the American dream, for the Asian American immigrant community in ways that need to be impacted because going to Harvard isn't the end all be all. What's interesting to me is that when we look at Asian American students who are in the Ivy Leagues, we do see a lot of dissatisfaction and we see a lot of activism and a lot of agitation for change. So for instance at Yale we've been seeing over the past few years more and more Asian Americans organizing for an Asian American Studies program because despite Yale's prestige and you know what it means for Career prospects and all that. Asian American students who've arrived there still feel like they can't see themselves in the curriculum. I think there are these different metrics of what a good education looks like that need to be thought about because prestige is one thing, but you know, culturally relevant curriculum is another thing, and Asian American students aren't necessarily getting that in the IBS.
0: And you've talked to a lot of students who said, "I feel like I'm a percentage, but not the face." or part of this university. I'm not actually either reflected or considered to reflect this institution. So if you can unpack this a bit, what is the point behind having an Asian American studies program, which not every student is going to major in, but Mm -hmm. what does that do? And that has been the history as we talked about a bit earlier about black studies programs, African American studies programs in the late 60s that students said we need to be represented, included, and be part of the study of who as a country and as a nation, as an institution we have become.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think that seeing oneself reflected in, in curriculum and course offerings and history books is, is a way of seeing communities that so often are objects of American history instead to be framed as subjects, as historical agents who lead movements and put forth demands and make active choices and fight for justice in a way that positions us as more than side characters in the American story. And I think that's a powerful thing for students, regardless of you know whether they end up majoring in ethnic studies or Asian American studies, because most students won't, but there are plenty of students who will take that intro to Asian American studies course and it provides them with a lens and a framework for thinking of themselves and their lives and their communities differently. And that's something that can apply to you know, whatever work and career they might go on and go forth to pursue.
0: I talked to Stefan Bradley recently, who studied the movement of black students, African-American students at the elite institutions, who really were the ones who pushed for change at huge risk and sacrifice. It was never white administrators and benevolent white presidents who admitted students. Mm -hmm. It was always students at the forefront of these demands, which on balance, we would think, have improved higher education. You've also looked at a couple other things that I think are really complicated for people in my own experience. People have really been, let's say, in a positive way, stumped or completely befuddled. There's a presence of international students, especially international students from Asia writ large. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's mostly China and India now. It used to be Korea in greater numbers. And they come with very different expectations, demands, and histories to campus, And I think there's a lot of work to be done to unpack a little bit. These are different groups. They are international students. They come to college in America for years. Maybe they live here and maybe they'll stay here. But other students have grown up here as Mm Asian-Americans. When you talk to students, how do they understand this presence on most American university campuses now?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think there's certainly a frustration amongst Asian American students who can tell that their peers and their professors and administrators can't necessarily distinguish between the very, very different experiences of Asian Americans and Asian international students. And I think at a purely sort of visual level for non-Asian students to walk around campus and see, wow, there's so many Asians, like, what do they have to complain about? It misses a lot of those crucial differences. And this is a lot of, I think, what it means to be an Asian American. At the same time, I think that there can be sort of a demonization of Asian international students as these like privileged interlopers who have no business coming into American institutions in a way that I think performs a lot of Orientalist scripts and is worth thinking about it's complicated i do worry that the 21st century higher education system is in crisis is in financial crisis in some ways and is leaning on wealthy asian international students who are able to pay a full tuition rate to sort of bandage up that crisis and at the same time positioning that as you know a global diverse community in a way that tells a simple story where it's much more complicated. I think having diverse perspectives and, you know, an international student body is great and important, but if it's only the elite of China or of India who are able to come to institutions like NYU or Brown or Harvard, it's not the same diversity of perspectives as it could be if, you know, the international student body were more diverse when it comes to class, as well as, you know, national origin.
0: It touches on a complicated issue that in American higher ed, domestic students are eligible for financial aid that used to be tied to federal categories or state categories. You have to live in a state or be part of the United States citizens. Now, since so much public aid has disappeared that schools kept that system for good reason, because it made sense, but now it looks a little bit as if schools give aid to American students but don't consider international students for aid, although the larger mission is to educate the best and brightest and most talented. Mm -hmm. So if you would think, well, globally speaking, who are the most qualified? (laughs) Back to square one, that you would develop the criteria for merit. And I think there's two other factors on Asian international students. There is an idea that they're all wealthy. I think then of course there's also a range among them and there's an enormous Mm -hmm. kind of pressure that they have to perform for their family, which maybe goes into high levels of debt and Completely perform really really well in an American college. This is their one shot. This is the one kid that got sent There's Mm -hmm. a huge amount of pressure not to return and fail or drop out That's one of the assumptions behind it And the other ones is that especially this is a really pervasive stereotype about Chinese students They don't really know how to think critically. They went Mm -hmm. to the wrong system They didn't Mm -hmm. go to a different system But they went to the wrong system because the way we educate people in this country is the best possible way leaving out the fact that maybe secondary education in this country also could be improved on some level. So this mm-hmm. is the idea that American high school students are really well prepared for college, but Asian high school students are really not prepared because they only know how to memorize. Mm-hmm. So there are these other things that come in, and I think what's really complicated is that you have Asian Americans having to unpack and educate people about their own histories. And then you have students from Asia who come in and people just see them as, you know, fresh off the boat, Mm -hmm. crazy rich Asians raised Mm -hmm. by tiger moms. And I've used just three stereotypes that probably are not helpful. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Right?
1: But those are the narratives (laughs) that get circulated. circulated, yeah.
0: And it's interesting how to undo that. So when you've talked to students, what do you think are some of the creative or productive ways in which students can help change these stories? Because I think a lot of faculty also don't really have maybe the means or the time to do the work to really unpack their own assumptions, Mm -hmm. let's hope they're willing to do so.
1: Yeah, I mean I think one of the most interesting things for me has been having Asian and international students participating in Asian American student groups and spaces and I think that doesn't happen as often as it could but when it does I think is a really rich opportunity for the exchange of very different viewpoints and experiences and For, I think, let's say a Chinese international student to become more familiar with Asian American history and to hear the experiences and perspectives of someone who grew up in New York City, Chinatown, it opens up a different history and world for them in a way that I think is really generative and also I think can help to create a sense of belonging and a sense of place to this history of Asians in America, because the perpetual foreigner stereotype is still very much true. And I think a lot of both Asian American and Asian international students come to college not knowing that there is this long, rich history of of Asian American presence and activism in, in the States. And I think the opposite is true as well for Asian American students to hear and understand the experiences of Asian international students who oftentimes grow up, you know, not thinking of themselves as a minority and then having a very different relationship to whiteness and white supremacy and diaspora, I think opens up a lot of, a lot of room for rich conversations that don't happen a lot of the time, because I do think that for a lot of structural reasons, I've seen, you know, the international student body be very segregated in ways. And I think that's partly because of these stereotypes that get circulated about international students that, you know, domestic students, even Asian American students don't want to rub shoulders with the Asian international students because they don't want to be associated with them. So when those bridges are able to be built and crossed, I think both parties have a lot to gain from
0: that. The idea you just mentioned of perpetual foreigners, what does that refer to and where does that come from?
1: Yeah, I think the perpetual foreigner narrative is the stereotype that, you know, all Asians are recent immigrants, they're fresh off the boat. And, you know, in Asian American circles, this question, where are you from, is a common refrain or joke of of the ways in which Asian Americans get questioned as to, you know, how they ended up here, as if we're all, you know, not from New York or L.A., but from Seoul or Tokyo or whatever. And so I think this assumption that Asians in America are newcomers is still very prevalent.
0: I'm going to ask you kind of a meta question. So so I'm in conversation with you and I've met you through NYU and through your really amazing work and I've been reading your work and I really appreciate you on the show. And at the same time, you've written about the kind of unpaid intellectual and emotional labor <laughs> that Asian-Americans are asked to do. So you had this example of Margaret Cho, the comedian being asked by the actress, Tilda Swinton say, explain this Asian-American issue about casting to me. And Margaret Cho said, I don't know her. I didn't think I had this obligation to explain my experience to just some famous but random white person. (laughs) And I've talked about this with a couple students that when you just said Asian-Americans and Asian international students, could productively be in conversation. As a white person on the outside, I don't want to be the person coming in and saying, "Mark, explain to me what it means to be a, an Asian mm-hmm. American student at an Ivy League institution." And I part of my podcast is the point to actually find a way to have conversations They don't distribute this burden unevenly.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: It's not oh, I can put people, you know, in this position to explain themselves, and I'm of course. I mean, I'm a foreigner in this country, I have an accent, but otherwise I'm self-evident to myself. I'm white, I don't have to explain anything ever.
1: Mm-hmm. I think it's a complicated question. I mean, on the one hand, there is a certain intellectual labor or hand-holding that people of color, especially students of color, have to do. On the other hand, I'd much rather you know, be in conversation with you and be on your show than you to have a bunch of you know, white experts on the Asian-American experience speaking for me. So I think I think there's something to be said for you know providing platforms for folks to speak directly about their experiences and perspectives, and you know, as someone in your position and in your role at NYU you have a lot of say over you know what sort of programs get continued, get invested in, and so i'm I'm glad to be in conversation with you in that respect.
0: If you're thinking of your own role on a college campus, I think there is a, a real interest among students and also a real hesitation. To not get it wrong. But you've talked to students at Harvard and Ivy institutions who don't want to comment on this lawsuit right now. They are in favor of affirmative action, in favor of racial justice. They want to have solidarity with other movements, but they also feel they're being pitted against it. And then white students somehow are not asked as much about how do you feel about this as if you're not pitted against the whole system. What would you say to your students, to undergraduates, and say? How would you start these conversations without putting somebody on the spot say, "How do you feel about this?" As belonging to group X, Y, or Z?
1: Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I definitely agree that the role of Asian Americans in these conversations is sort of overdetermined or predetermined, and so it can feel like an enormous and overwhelming burden to try to speak back to these discursive narratives that are saying you know, what you as an Asian American ought to feel or think about affirmative action or campus politics. But in my experience, I think when students can speak openly and honestly about their own personal experiences, that's the most powerful place to start. I think that's the most powerful place for solidarity to be built. I definitely have seen reticence from Asian American students who are interested in building these coalitions with Black and Latino student groups who don't know where to begin, who don't want to sort of overstep or step on any toes. And I think that partly is because of these narratives of being pitted against each other. I think it's also because the relationships aren't always there. These student groups, oftentimes oriented around racial identity or cultural identity, they tend to, you know, self-select. And so these circles don't often merge and those relationships and trust don't often get built. And I think increasingly it's not always some grand organizing strategy that brings people together. Sometimes it's just having a meal or having a meeting. And so I know that, you know, when I was at NYU, when the I2M NYU student movement started and sort of Black and Latinx and Native American and Asian American students were coming together in spaces, I... Met a lot of people that I I just I had never crossed paths with, particularly black student organizers and Native American student organizers. We weren't in the same world. But when we came together, I think we were able to build trust and relationships that both personally and politically were very productive. So I try to encourage students not to be overwhelmed by these overwhelming, massive narratives about where Asian-Americans fit into all this. Let's just start with the personal.
0: Right. I think your work is great that actually you've tackled these big, overwhelming questions. You've kind of broken them down. And then you've talked with students and said, this is very difficult. In some ways, in your work, in can sense and you're not pressuring anybody to give a direct response on something, mm-hmm. but say, how do you even approach this issue for yourself? which gives people the room to say, I don't want to deal with this part right now, but this is what my experience informs here. Mm-hmm. Your trajectory now, so you're working toward your PhD, and do you want to go into teaching and research? Is that? That's the idea.
1: We'll see how it pans out. I know the job market, particularly in fields like ethnic studies and Asian American studies, is tough right now, but if I can swing it, I'd love to be able to pursue that. I think for me, you know, college was such an important time for me in terms of my own political identity and Asian American studies played such an important role in my own growth and development that I feel like not necessarily an obligation, but a desire to be part of that work to sort of be able to play that role for new generations of students.
0: Great. I was really happy to see you in a PhD program, and I believe the curriculum is a key component of all of this, that as much as student organizations and student activism takes place outside of classrooms, that the curriculum itself ought to reflect and it has to include and start these conversations. So they don't just become opt-ins for some groups and mostly white students can just not think about these issues. The curriculum has to include it or in another language decolonized to say to students, you're part of this conversation already. Mm-hmm. Rather than it's a separate site project, you can go to the center here for this. And this is an institutional question, but I think when it's in the curriculum, it becomes an intellectual conversation of who we are together. And then, mm-hmm. it's, then it becomes unavoidable in a different way for students who otherwise maybe would opt out of these conversations. Right. So I want to thank you, Mark, for being on the program. And I will put a couple links up to your writings. And I wish you a lot of success balancing your activism, your really on point writings on these issues and your scholarly work writing your dissertation.
1: Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been great to catch up a little bit.
0: Great. Okay, and good luck. And I think you're coming up with a break. So have a good break. And thank you. 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 Okay, thank you, Mark.
1: All right. Take care. Bye. Bye.